Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everyone. This is episode 220. We're recording this live on September 30th, 2021, or otherwise known as International Podcast Day, because there's a day for everything. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today again by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello and good morning, because it's now morning here, and we are I'm at the, at the 1st of October, so I'm in the future. You are not only in the next day, you are in the next month away from me. Uh, we got a... <laughs> Didn't even think of that. <laughs> we got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about emoji and communication between uh, patients and doctors. But first, we got a little bit of programming notes here for you all. Uh, just to give you all an update, you might have noticed uh, co-host of the show, Blake, he's been out. Uh, he's going to be out on a temporary hiatus for a little bit. We're not sure when he's going to be back, but he will be back. Everything's OK. Don't worry. He's in good health. Uh, nothing's wrong health wise. If there was, he'd be communicating with his doctor about using emoji. There's other stuff going on. We can't talk about it. Anyway, <laughs> he'll be back. We're going to figure it out. Um, and uh, aside from that, I do want to quickly plug. We're always working on really exciting things behind the scenes. Uh, and Barry and I have been talking even about potentially other exciting things uh, behind the scenes here. Uh, so if you are interested in any of that, I encourage you to reach out to me, uh, reach out to the podcast on any of our uh, social uh, platforms uh, to to talk about maybe joining the Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. Like I said, it's it's kind of a, a way for you to get involved um, and potentially get your hands on some really cool stuff that we caught coming down the pipeline. Uh, anyway, enough of me blabbering. We know why you're here. You're here for... Human Factors News. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field. Uh, Barry, what do we have? Uh, what's the story this week? So we talked about emojis are proposed as a powerful way for patients and doctors to communicate. So emoji, that universal lexicon of uh, colorful and clever symbols that meant to replace the written and spoken word could be a valuable tool in the field of medicine, allowing patients to better communicate symptoms, concerns, and other clinically relevant information and this is argued by Massachusetts General Hospital physicians and others. So in a commentary in the Journal of the American Medi Medical Association, senior author Xuan He, a medical doctor, uh, is an uh, emergency department attending, suggests that each medical discipline begin discussions around the creation of its own unique set of iconography for official adoption and incorporation into everyday practice. So for those of us who are uh, possibly not away, in 2010, Emoji was officially introduced as a global lexicon as part of Unicode. And I think we'll probably talk a bit more about how that happens later, but the Unicode is the uh, computing standard adhered to by most of the world's world processing systems. Today, emojis occupies the same status in Unicode as the Latin letter A, a Chinese character or an Arabic character. And an estimated 5 billion are used every day on Facebook and in Facebook Messenger alone. As of 2020, there are 3,521 emoji in the Unicode standard roughly 30 of which could be considered relevant to medicine, excluding generic body parts such as your ear, pand, etc. The current set of medical emoji is the result of ongoing, if erratic, efforts over the last five years. It's attempting to dismiss emoji as a millennial fad, but they possess the power of standardization, universality, and familiarity, and in the hands of physicians and other healthcare providers, 
could prevent uh, could present a new and highly effective way to communicate pictorially with patients, says he. In emergency medicine settings where time is crucial, emoji could lead to a point and tap form of communication that could facilitate important clinical decisions. The tiny graphic symbols now span all digital platforms, from mobile to tablet to desktop. Could, they could also have the utility as annotations to hospital discharge instructions, which are often confusing, if not comprehensible, to some patients. So, what do you think of that? Uh, that's a lot to take in. Uh, there, so, emojis. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the show about our emoji usage. I don't really use emoji all that much. And so to hear that it might be the key to communicating with healthcare professionals was surprising to me. Um, on the other hand, I've seen it used more recently. You know, I've, I've seen it used a lot more recently. And uh, I, I would say that, you know, I understand it for the most part when it comes across. Um and and we can talk about interpretation of it, but generally, I, great. The the better we can improve communication between uh, doctors and patients, I think the better, right? Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on this article, just in general? I think it's anything that we can do to improve communication between. Um, pr- I mean, the, the medical discipline is such an involved discipline. And it's most people are coming coming into the medical domain at a really scary time for them, if particularly if they're going down into the emergency department or something like that. So anything that we can do that allows the um, better communication and more immediate communication, then that could be a good thing. The When we're using this, I think it's, as we say, and I think we'll probably go into, the interpretation of some emojis means different things to different people. Um, you put on the um, on on the um, promotion part of this the the use of the the eggplant and the peach. Um, <laughs> one person's eggplant is not another person's eggplant, <laughs> um, and it's uh, there's also a the, the generational thing here around. Okay, so how do we as patients interpret these eggplants and and peaches and things? But how do does do the uh, do the doctors do the medical staff truly know what they're conveying? Um, we by using the, the the certain emojis. So, but the 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 other thing that I like about emojis is that they do they transcend language. You know, the um, a smiley face is a smiley face, and it it crosses culture, it crosses language barriers. So, yeah, I can sort of see how it's um, how the, there is stacks of potential there. But I also worry about um, the level of confusion that it could cause. Um, you could cause grave offence uh, yeah. by just using the wrong emoji, right? Um, but it's, is it, I, I think it'd be useful. I mean, why don't we go back to, um, you know, how do, how do, how do, does an emoji come about in the first place? Yeah. Or, uh, so, so we did a little bit of research before the show and there's a, there's a whole episode on, um, Roman Mars's, uh, podcast. I'm blinking on the name. Uh, but they, they go through the creation of emoji and what it takes to, to, um, make an emoji, but just to kind of shorthand everything, there's this Unicode consortium. Um, and they hear out some of these proposals on uh, new emoji every year. Basically, uh, they look through all of them. They the best proposals are approved uh, and then turned into emoji and then released to the public. Uh, and so that's why you know it seems like annually you're getting these new emojis. Um, the uh, it, the submission process is public, and and basically anyone in the world can make an emoji or submit an emoji. But it's going to be the ones with the strongest proposals by this uh, that are evaluated then by this 
um, uh, consortium that uh, that are accepted and and uh, released into the world, right? And I, I think you know they they do have uh, criteria that they evaluate this against, right? So they they look at sort of the compatibility. Is this is this approved on other platforms already? Um, it increases its chances if so, right? And then they kind of look at how the, the expected usage level, right? How, how often or frequently are they expecting people to use these new emojis? Uh, it needs to be distinct. So it needs to be separate, visually distinct from another emoji that already exists. And then um, it needs to be complete. So it needs to be able to fill in a gap that's present in the current emoji, emoji library. And all this context is going to be important when we actually talk about the story here in just a minute. Yeah. But I, I do want to bring up, so we talked about emoji, what it's born. I do want to get to our social thoughts really quick, and I'll start with mine. Uh, so we uh, we put out on the internet this week, um, you know, reply with your four most recent emojis to describe your medical issues to your doctor. The podcast account was smiley face, thumbs up, brain 100%. So I'm guessing the podcast is in good health and our brain is functioning 100%. That's my interpretation of it. <laughs> I, I'll go over mine and it's a it's a it's a it's a less than optimal outcome. We got fire, <laughs> peach, eggplant and heart uh, for mine. And I have an explanation for that. So I don't really use emoji. We talked about this a little bit before the show. Uh, but to me, I got to check something out because if, if my peach is on fire, then well, <laughs> anyway, so well, you um, get to love. So, yeah. <laughs> We'll get back to more social thoughts in a minute. But what are your uh, any any comments on how emojis are born before we get into sort of uh, more context on emojis here? Yeah, it's interesting that I mean, you found uh, be before we went went live the Emojipedia, um, the fact that there is a whole um, uh, Wikipedia based um, uh, resource that you can go and find emojis for everything. And um, having gone through the recent COVID um, pandemic, then obviously there's been a whole splurge of new um, coronavirus-related um, em emojis, which I think can only have um, helped because certainly when when we saw the the coronavirus emoji itself going around, sort of um, Twitter and things, then you it, it, you could tell that it was different. You could tell it that it tell that it was new. Therefore, it was sending a message, which I thought was quite good. Um, but also, as Kirsten says on the in our Discord. Um, some emojis are not necessarily standard just because they've gone into Unicode. There's platforms that use their own interpretation of things. So um, Kirsten highlights Twitch has its own sort of set of emojis um, that it uses. So just because um, it's not part of the consortia, yes, if it's part of the consortia, then it's likely to be adopted throughout any platforms that uses Unicode. Um, but but there's still platforms that can still go alone and add in their own uh, their own bit of spice, as it were. The, the other thing I really like, um, and we'll possibly go into it as well, is is how um, how emojis have now become a lot more inclusive. So you can have just a simple um, thumbs up um, with it with the standard yellow uh, yellow hand, um, the Simpsons hand perhaps. Um, but now you, it, it it actually reflects skin color as well. So if you you on your Apple device, you can select what color uh, the hand you want, what color skin you want to have on the hand to do the uh, to do the thumbs up with. Um, which I think is just really f brilliant in the way that we've taken a um, something that's seen as fairly standard and, and actually made it really inclusive as well. Yeah, great points. Um, I think 
you make a great point with the inclusivity, and I think that's you know that's one of their kind of goals at the consortium is to make sure that it it's universal, right? Uh, they want to make sure that it it is something that can communicate across barriers. Um, I, they don't exactly say that uh, in in their criteria here, but um, but it, it, at least for the factors of inclusion, right? That's what that's what they're looking at. Um, and I think, I think I want to get into a little bit of background on healthcare and why using emojis in healthcare can be so impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to get a little bit of background here about healthcare, this comes from a report from the World Health Organization. So they've, um, kind of consolidated a lot of research. This is from 2009. It's a little older, but a lot of it still stands. So just generally in healthcare, uh, you know, they cite that communication failures are one of the leading causes for inadvertent patient harm. And, um, you know, I think that is an important statement, but it's not necessarily as it relates to this story. So we're talking about team communication for the most part in this. And one thing that I, as I was reading through this report from the World Health Organization, I was surprised that they don't really... They comment on it, but it's not as explored as uh, some of the other team communications in healthcare settings, right? So, um, you know, when you when you consider a team of healthcare professionals, you're dealing with issues where there's handoff issues or communication issues um, for like uh, p- providing patient background information to a new uh, location or even handing off to a different doctor uh, in between shifts. So there's um, there's a lot of stuff going on here behind the scenes when it relates to teamwork. Uh, and then, you know, as it relates to the patient doctor relationship, uh, we can talk about that in terms of the article, but is there anything that you wanted to bring up in terms of like communication and healthcare? Yeah. I think one of the prevalent issues in healthcare, um, and I don't think it's, um, it's countrywide. I think it, it is um, international. The the seniority in um, healthcare teams has always been an issue. So if a some if, if somebody junior within the operating theatre or something like that raises an issue and says, "Oh, I'm not sure whether you've done some done something right," then the senior surgeon in the room or whoever it is is the most senior in the room. Um, sometimes or certainly historically, um, that can be one of the failures that they won't they refuse to be told what to do and then they've done something wrong so i think around that team and bringing in better the, the big drive certainly in the um, nhs in the uk the national health health system in the, in the uk is to bring around better communications and listening to everybody um and, and making sure that everybody's view is heard and and appreciated and valid so i think there is um there's you know around just gen- that general teamwork element it's it's trying to push the the real teaming aspect, not just the hierarchy and control aspect. Yeah, I'm going to read a statistic here uh, that's that's kind of shocking. Um, so it's been suggested that anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of healthcare errors are caused by human factors associated with poor team communication and understanding. Uh, again, this is kind of focused on the team, but it uh, it it really does kind of go. Um, it highlights how important communication is in the healthcare setting. Even though it's the team communicating, you can imagine that there's similar breaks or similar gaps in communication with respect to the patient and the doctor. I don't know if the the percentage is going to be that high, but uh, you know, it's it's kind of crazy that 
all this stuff like teamwork, communication, leadership are all critical to uh, a safe environment. Um, and just how this good communication can really reduce uh, any problems with patient safety. Um, Absolutely. I mean, when you when you think about that doctor or um, healthcare professional and patient barrier, almost the healthcare professional knows so much. You know, they you know they they know you better than you know you because they've perhaps seen things inside you that you don't ever want to see. And uh, you know, they they've got that whole knowledge and everything around them that um, they need to be able to communicate to you as a patient what you need to know without terrifying you, without in a way that will be proactive and positive for you to be able to make the right decisions in going forward. So they've got a whole lot of judgments to make around just how much to tell you to be open and honest about what's going on. But perhaps, you know, it's one of these jobs where oversharing is a, is a bad idea. Um, but also undersharing is a tremendously bad idea as well. So it's, it's, there's got to be a real skill there in how to pitch information in a way that is proactive and productive. Um, and I think rather them than me. Yeah. Uh, that's a great segue. Let's get back into the article here because the article is basically suggesting that that emoji is kind of one of these key ways in which patient doctor communication can be improved. And they give a couple examples here. I do want to go through some of these examples uh, so that way we kind of wrap our heads around uh, the context here. So, for example, right, written discharge instructions uh, might be really confusing. Um, to many patients. And we talked about sort of the inclusivity as well as um, universal understanding of emoji, right? Uh, at least as it, they, they hope that there's this universal understanding of emoji, and that might be one of the issues with this. But um, the uncertainty uh, for the reason of hospitalization or being unable to describe diagnosis. Um, so being able to communicate that in emoji, right? That yeah. might be a better way to communicate those types of things. You have um, preliminary evidence suggesting that patients, particularly those with lower health literacy, especially might um, prefer reported outcome data in emoji format because they might uh, better comprehend what's going on. Um, so that's that's just one example, but I think it's an important example because you, you do have varying levels of... Um, I guess, literacy with, with health. And so being able to communicate that there's, you know, problems with this body part and you take this many pills at this time of day, um, might be just what the doctor ordered. Well, it, it makes sense when you think about it though, doesn't it? Cause it's the whole picture paints a thousand words. The, um, rather than trying to describe what sort of pill or what sort of medication you want, the ability just to show the uh, picture of it or the, you know, like the pulling the right body part. And I think a lot of this is going, is coming uh, more prevalent because you're not necessarily um, in with your doctor or healthcare professional all the time at the moment. We are, we're doing a, still a lot more remote. So, um, um, general practitioner engagement, your, your healthcare professional, you might be seeing on, you know, something like the technology we're using at the moment, like a, um, a web meeting or something. So the ability to put into chat or whatever, whatever the using the, 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 the mini pictures to create the, um, the, 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 the describing what you're feeling is surely got to be an easier way for both sides to understand it. As long as everybody does understand it. I think it's probably quite key to say that the article is not suggesting that we use all of the current emojis as they currently sit, 
to do all of this. They're um, suggesting that they're um, they're going to promote um, a whole new bank of emojis to to support this um, this capability. Because as we said in the uh, the initial introduction, there's there's a limited number of medical emojis at the moment. Um, and whilst you've got an arm and a leg, there's there's other body parts that you may want to allude to. Um, and that takes us right back to, I guess, eggplants and peaches. Yeah. yeah. I mean, let's talk about that proposed list of emojis, because I think it's, it's important um, to talk about some of them. So I, I'm going to do a poor job of describing some of these. And that's going to be a theme <laughs> throughout tonight's episode <laughs> is, is me poorly describing emojis and actually before we describe some of the medical emojis i do want to take a break and 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 look at more of the social thoughts because we only got to myself and the podcast so i'm gonna i'm gonna is it okay if i reveal yours or do you want to you you reveal yours okay so my first one was the smiley face with the heart eyes so still not entirely sure what that means then i've got the closed fist which i think i'm supposed to be fist bumping um but then i've got the the microphone um and the computer so I'm I'm presumably got punched in the head whilst very happy, um, and but now I can't speak because I've been punched in the face and I can't do anything on the computer. I to me that reads uh, I punched you in the face with a request to be on the podcast tonight, and now you're forced to podcast. That's that's what that's hey, what I mean. I've got podcastitis. There we go. Podcastitis on National <laughs> Podcast Day. <laughs> uh all right uh i'll read one more here this one's from taylor it's uh side eyes uh crying laughing face with a monocle as the next one and then a checkbox so i'm assuming uh this is telling a story of like not sure if everything's okay laughing about the misunderstanding doing a double check and then everything's a-okay that's what i'm interpreting with that one uh all right let's get into some of these proposed emojis uh that they are talking about in this study here uh i'm trying to find it do you have yeah i've got it so the it's interesting so they're, they're in fact they some of these proposed in 2020 but the, so they've got the very specific um um small smaller and small and large intestine they've got um the liver they've got a um the, the kidneys um, they've got the stomach, they've got the lower leg, but in a plaster cast, um, or a bandage, plastic cast or a bandage. And then you've got, uh, you've got a spine, you've got one, but then you've got one for pills. You've got one for a, um, blood plasma bag. So is it for, for getting a transfusion? Um, then you've got a fluids bag. Um, so for, for just general fluid, then, oh, yeah, that's a CT scanner. Um, because that goes into, um, uh, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you've got a black ball. I'm not entirely sure what the black ball is. Is that a weight scale? Is that is that the weight scale that they're talking about there? Oh, it could be, but it doesn't have anything on there. It's a bit... It almost looks like um, a pool ball or a snooker ball. Yeah. Um, that one could be confusing. The, then we've got the pill box, so, you know, the, um, a nice pill box which, which has your uh, pills in every day. And then you've got um, a white version of what I think is coronavirus or just a general virus or something like that. And then you've got crutches and then you've got an ECG readout so what you get on the hat on the um heart monitor your yeah. um um heart, heart trace and i still can't think of the word I the actual word for it even though we've been uh, looking at that they, now for the best part of an hour they just call it ecg the white uh, one the okay. the the white coronavirus that's that's a white blood cell is what they call it uh, um, uh, fair yeah so so um this is a this is a great list of emoji here that they proposed but i do want to go over like there there's some that are already out there that could be 
really useful for this type of uh, application. And I'll go over those. So right now they have a syringe, they have a pill, they have like a medical professional, male and female. Um, they have a cane or a, a blind stick, a blind cane. Uh, they have mechanical arm, mechanical leg, a hearing aid, which is really inclusive. I'm really happy about that. They also have a stethoscope, a blood droplet, a bone, a tooth, uh, looks like some sort of virus, a heart and lungs. So they have, um, uh, they have quite a, a, uh, uh, extensive example here of of things that are already in practice, and that could be combined with some of the other emojis that are out there, like you know face mask or bandage or microscope or even uh, the medical sig- signal. I think is out there. I think they even have microbe um, uh, as as a emoji out there. So there's there's ways in which you can use this to communicate, uh, and I think I think it's important to kind of recap where we're at and where we could be. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on on these proposed emoji? Uh, do you think there's anything? I mean, we already kind of talked a little bit about a criticism with one of them, with the black ball with the smaller ball in the middle. We're not quite sure what that is. I think it's a weight scale. Yeah, um, I think you're right. It's a weight scale. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that one. I think they need to go back to the drawing board with that one. Agree. But in, in principle, I mean, some of these things. I th- do they need to be in sort of general approved? Um, um, emoji through the Unicode consortium, or would these be better suited to specific um, medical applications? So I can easily see you having a so the medical practitioner having a tablet um, and asking them to asking the patients to point you know to any one of these symbols of, of the body parts, which one what hurts, what do you need, and passing them um, back and forth. Um, so on the one hand, you could say, well, actually, that doesn't need to be general knowledge. That that just needs to be within the medical domain, because if they do their job properly, they should immediately convey exactly what they're talking about. That said, if they're if they are part of the Unicode consortium, then and they're available to everybody, then that means that everybody implicitly knows what they are. Um, and so there's that general learning piece. The third issue with with that, I think, also the, the third way of looking at it is, as we sort of said with some of the other emojis, the the way that they're interpreted changes, and it changes through um, through age, through generations, um, and so and across could, cultures too. Yeah, and across cultures, could some of these be, um, I guess, reinterpreted by different people in to mean different things? Um, so we keep on referring back to you know the peach and the, and, and the eggplant. Clearly, we're not talking about a peach and an eggplant. But when I was talking to, I sort of had a chat with my kids tonight over dinner, but um, talking about about what we're going to talk about talking about tonight, and and there's the just the misinterpretations or different interpretations of current emojis. So we, my daughter sent me a, um, an, an emoji with the the crying face emoji, so a sad crying face, and so we, me and my wife were very much of the well, you know, are you why are you sad? What, what what's up? What's upset you? And then it took her boyfriend to, to then drop into the conversation and say, actually, no, no that's her saying that she's really, really happy. I'm like, well, it's not because that's the sad kind. Yeah, that, that, the, tea, the tears of joy and laughter one is the other one. It, it's different. Um, but it's just the way that they they use them differently. So kids are today, I tell you. Yeah. Um, but it, it sort of shows, you know, it's it's one person's uh, one person's liver isn't, the same, isn't potentially another person's liver. So... Or it might be at the moment, but it'll evolve over time. So we've got to be able to make sure that we understand the breadth of how these how, how the language works. 
Right. And I think as we get to the specific body parts, that might be less and less of an issue. And especially in, in the medical community, we we do want that to be kind of less of an issue, right? Um, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, how, how it changes generationally. And this could be used for, you know, children who are still developing some of these language skills. Um, and in fact, there's there's evidence for this, right? I mean, there's, um, I think it's it's the FACES pain rating scale. Uh, mm-hmm. It's helped children kind of navigate their pain. I think it was in 1983 uh, by this report. Um, but basically, it's showing a series of faces ranging from a happy face at zero or no hurt uh, to a crying face at 10, which represents hurt like the worst pain imaginable. Um, but there's issues with this, right? They're trademarked and come with licensing fees. But if you use something like emoji that are freely open source and non-proprietary, uh, then, you know, it's it's a nice alternative um, that's not cost prohibitive and, and, uh, potentially more familiar to patients, you, you, you know, especially as, as, uh, emoji is within that Unicode library and you have many more people accessing it, right? It's not like they see these 10 separate faces on, on the faces pain rating scale. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, and there's it's not just that uh, for children, but, you know, you have other pain rating scales uh, like visual analog scales um, used in medicine to measure, communicate the intensity or frequency of system or symptoms. Um, and so uh, that these things exist already. It's just using different pictorial representations to uh, that are that are open source and freely available that um, also help with kind of the familiarity with these types of things. That's right. Uh, it should be a lot here as well about um, again thinking about how we evolve as a as a as a species almost because the when a lot of these rating scales were first made, emojis didn't exist. So now that we get we're getting there, um, it becomes freely available, and therefore it it seems to me to be a. Um, particularly as we use more t- uh, telemedicine, telecare, that type of thing, um, you can use it for children and also the as the um as we get older then we'll be more used to using this as we go into old age many years from now um and but then we'll emojis will be second nature for us so it it makes a lot of sense yeah i want to get to a couple more social thoughts and then we'll wrap this up so uh again it was reply with the four most recent emojis to describe medical issues to your doctor aaron uh says crying laughing lion uh sigh and pumpkin I'm not sure how to interpret that. I'm thinking maybe uh, they were laughing, then got attacked by a lion that made them exasperated, and now they turned into a pumpkin or something. Uh, and then the last one here is by Ghostine on Instagram. Here we got, uh, what is that, scared, blood, uh, skull, grave. So I it's not turning out well for Ghostine there. That, 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 that was a bad day. Uh, yeah. Uh, scared then blood was drawn then they died and now they're in a grave okay uh all right let's go ahead and wrap this up here i want to talk about um sort of the the impact that covid19 has had uh on telemedicine and and, and you know kind of this whole uh being able to interact with doctors uh, at scale yeah um so you know thinking about sort of, you know, both the the CDC and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they've uh, recommended this telemedicine as a way to provide uh, care safely for patients during the pandemic. Um, And you think about that communication between people, 
especially in a situation where you're not face to face, you want to communicate the right things. And so they're also suggesting that in this context, you know, healthcare workers might be able to use online messages um, or emoji in these online messages to convey symptoms, uh, help patients understand their condition and instructions uh, via recognition rather than recall, right? So if you see like a sick face, you feel like that, or, you know, I'm, I'm just throwing things out there, right? Is there any blood or, uh, you know, what hurts? I, I'm thinking those might be kind of cool as a way to communicate. Uh, the, the recognition rather than recall is, is really important here. Yeah. Um, because they might present you with a series of emojis and you just respond with the ones that you recognize in, you know, your symptoms and, uh, might be, might be better, uh, to, to visually represent those types of things rather than a series of, you know, a string of text that just says, Hey, what symptoms have you fever, you know? Yeah, I think. I think the what the pandemic has shown us that um, telemedicine, telecare is is here to stay. It worked, um, and so I think there's going to be a, a a strong push to do to keep doing some of that, so that we so doctors can deal with maybe simpler cases um, without people having to go go through to going going into the surgery and things. So being able to use um, use this capability to um, to allow that to happen is is is, is going to be essential for us moving forward so i think if they get these these new emojis actually um uh, submitted and and approved then i think we could see um a, i think we will see them being used um it'll be interesting to see how it goes i hope so all right well thank you so much to our patrons this week for selecting the topic and thank you to our friends over at massachusetts general hospital for our news story this week if you want to follow along you can follow me on office hours every monday night where i uh, find these news stories and we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog you can also join us on our slack or discord for more discussion on these stories leave us uh, your favorite emojis over there we're going to take a quick break and we'll see what's going on in the human factors community right after this Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Huge thank you, as always, to our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff patrons uh, like Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. If you want to become a patron, it's easy for you to do. Uh, we have a link in the description of this episode. You can find it on our website. You can find it pretty much everywhere. Uh, we always got fun stuff going on over there. And we might have some more fun stuff coming up in the future. I think that's okay to say. Uh, anyway, check that out. If it's if it's if you fancy that anyway, I'm going to stop talking now. I, I don't like the self. The self-promotion is always hard. Anyway, go check it out if you feel like it. We're going to get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. 
Yes, it came from. This week, uh, it's all Reddit, but that's okay. This is part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. If you find these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're at to help other people find this content. Uh, I think we have time for three. I think we'll say three tonight. Um, okay. we, we can let's... be on we, we might cut one for time, but we'll see. Uh, I'm going to get into this uh, first one here. Uh, this is help with justifying how a UX course would help with my current role. This is from NCI SCO Kid on the user experience subreddit. I'm signing up for a UX course. My current role is working with proposal graphics process and architectural diagrams, et cetera. I want to pivot my role to UX instead of being a proposal graphics designer and give that up completely. My boss is behind me taking the course, but wants me to be able to justify it to higher ups in order to get the company to cover it. Since I'm not really super familiar with UX in general, does anyone have any exposure to both kinds of work that you can help with some bullet points as to how the course would benefit my current proposal role? Please and thank you. So I want to talk about two things here, uh, Barry. I want to talk about first, how do you justify going to something that you're not uh, necessarily an expert in or like let's say you wanted to go to a, a a separate conference about a specific topic that maybe isn't human factors and then two how do you justify uh going to human factors or uh conferences or you know participating in these courses so i guess first up for me it's the, if you're looking at basically broadening your horizon which is if you're if you're going to look at something in that's not necessarily as part of your role then that's what you're doing then you've got to be able to couch that in what does it bring to the business what value does it mean to your boss or to your department or to the overall capability of the company if you know this broader range of skills so sometimes it can be can be exploratory and if it's a bit cheaper, if it's something that doesn't require, say, um, a vast amount of time or money, so a day, maybe a couple of days, whatever, then sometimes it can it, it, you can justify it by saying, look, I don't know whether it's going to help, but it sounds interesting. I think it might have links. Therefore, it's worth a punt. It's worth us giving, giving it a shot. But if you're wanting to invest thousands of pounds in in a, in a new course, um, to which will pivoting you away from what you do, then you've got to lay out, lay that out a bit stronger. You've got to come up with um, effectively a business case about why you need to do it, um, or get your boss really drunk and get them to agree to it when they didn't realise. Um, but no, in serious, you've got to be able to lay it out in business terms. If you're expecting the business to pay for it, you've got to fundamentally say, you know, what are they got? What are they going to get out of it? If you're pivoting away from something, which is which was which was hinted at, how are they going to have that capability going forward? Um, so who's going to pivot into your role to to do what you were doing um and basically make it so you've got all the answers so if you know if you put yourself in the in the position of the people who are going you going to justify this answer their questions beforehand get it all written down get the argument laid out and and crack on um most times i've sort of done this a couple of times where i've wanted to learn something new so i've maybe done a bit of coding or i've done um in fact when i I pivoted out of um, engineering into human factors. Um, so, and, and look at look at me now. Um, so that kind of, that kind of works. The but you've got to be able to justify. It. You've got to be able to justify it, not to yourself, but to the people who are going to pay the bills. Yeah, I will say um, it's an interesting case breaking out from another field into human factors or user experience because I feel like it's a little easier to to sell that. Uh, you know, rather than being inside human factors and going 
outward towards other things. I'm going to talk about it from this perspective because I feel like, um, you know, as as people might be looking into the human factors field or UX field, it it's an easy sell. And all you have to say is, honestly, any training or any uh, any sort of thought into making a product better for the user is going to have uh, return on investment. And this is obviously of somebody that's coming from the field, <laughs> knowing what that can do. Um, and so uh, actually, you know, being able to quantify that return on investment and saying, you know, I, I'm going to take this UX course. Uh, and because of this course, I'm going to learn X, Y, and Z, which will help with capability X, Y, and Z or ABC, you know, and, and being able to, um, link it back to exactly what the outcomes of this course will do for you. Right. I think that's important. It will also strengthen your position at the company and strengthen confidence in the company itself. If you have these credentials of like a, a certification or a course or going to a conference, um, conferences are a little bit more easier to sell, I think, uh, just because a lot of times conferences provide you with justification kits to to go back to industry and say, these are the things that I'm hoping to get out of it. Um and this is how it's going to help our product. So it's it's a little easier to do it from that perspective. If it's a tangential conference, it's a little harder, but still doable, right? It, you know, it, let's say you're in, I don't know, like um, in the defense industry and you go to a defense conference. That's not going to be out of the realm of, you know, uh, possibility, I think. If you're going and mingling with the people that you are potentially going to interview for you know, user interviews somewhere down the line, I think it's, or building those connections. I think that's important too. Um, you know, it, it might be a tougher sell if you're in defense industry and you want to go to an electronics show or something, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a tougher sell, although you still could probably do it. Um, I don't know. I, I don't have really any other thoughts on this. It's just kind of do your research with uh, what you get out of the conference, link it back to how it's going to improve your performance. And especially if you're trying to switch roles in the company, maybe, let that be known, but be strategic about it. I wouldn't try to do everything all at once. I would say, you know, maybe start more subtly and then work into it. But that's just me if you're trying to, you know, switch roles in a company. Any other closing thoughts on this one? Yeah, it depends on the size of the company to a certain extent. If you're part of a large company, then actually probably switching roles and stuff is a, is a bit easier. If you're part of a really small company, then make their lives easy by by laying out that argument. The yeah. current conferences is if you're if you go to human factors conferences and you're already a human factors practitioner then absolutely recommended to do so because a it is about learning new content but it's about the networking it's about you know there is us human factors people a few and far between we need to stick together in packs and herds um so that's a great way of doing that um but you sometimes you if you're part of a larger company you sometimes do struggle with that that they'll only pay for maybe one person out of your department to go um so just make sure that's you yeah. All right. Let's get into this next one here. This is how do you organize user feedback? Uh, their specific uh, situation is an early stage startup. This is by Fuel Powerful on the user experience subreddit. They say, I work for a really small startup and we're just getting new clients in our beta. I've been organizing user feedback in different ways as we're doing research, but I'm trying to get a better process to organize and prioritize feedback since it's starting to come in through different channels. So like sales teams, account executives, technical onboarding specialists, etc. Has anyone found a good process? It's not something that has to be perfect as we're still small, but something we could use as we grow and eventually find a more solid solution as we get more clients. For right now, I was thinking about 
an Airtable or Google Doc so I could use Zapier to automate things if needed. What are your thoughts on that, Barry? Um, I think they're probably starting off in the right place, some sort of spreadsheet. Um, you can't beat a good a good spreadsheet for this sort of thing, um, especially once you get your auto formatting and all that sort of stuff sorted, sorted out. You can see where my geek comes into play. Um, and the good thing about using a spreadsheet for this sort of thing, uh, it's it's easily communicated as well. Chances are your clients or um, or your users or whatever will also have access to that type of thing. However, there are, there are a bunch of other... Um, IDs you can use. I mean, you can go back to basics and use use basic um, cards for a card sort. Um, you know, if you if you've got um, different channels coming in, assign them different color post-it notes and and actually go go back to, go back to the physical approach. Not necessarily recommended on on a large scale, but actually you can get some really nice um, almost heat maps type type of approach just occurring just because of what you're doing. There's also digital versions of that. Um, so, and almost any, almost any sort of, sort of, I guess, Kanban management um, software as well will do a similar thing. Um, so you can use that that type of approach as well to put things into the into into the appropriate pipes and columns. But I would I would always pretty much revert back to some sort of spreadsheeting because you you just have to. It's the best thing to use. In my <laughs> own opinion. Yeah, we're both spreadsheet guys. I I love spreadsheets, uh, and especially because if you set it up right, it will serve you. Mo- it'll serve like ninety percent of your needs. Um, especially as you're collecting different data, you might be able to link that data together in ways that uh, is new and exciting and exploratory in a lot of ways. Especially for something like a startup. I will echo the uh, Kanban management uh, sort of you know like Jira or. I guess what else? Uh, Trello, Trello I, yeah, Trello. I'm familiar with the Atlassian suite. So um, yeah. I think that is often a lot of times uh, underlooked. I think the big advantage to that is that you can align to the, the company's goals uh, earlier on. So you can see what's coming down the pipeline. And yeah. if you make your own tickets in there, you can attach them and say like, hey, look, we need to do a user thing on this thing. And you attach all that user feedback to a separate ticket or to the ticket that it, you know, it, uh, it matters on. Right. So like, let's say a a developer needs to develop some interface um, that might be good to attach a mock-up to. Right. So absolutely right. There's several different ways that you can align, but I think you're right. A good spreadsheet, uh, you can't beat it. And the other thing I want to mention too is that there's situations in which you cannot necessarily collect digital feedback all the time, uh, especially in the defense industry. You might, you know, be in spaces where you can't take in electronic devices, and so uh, for that, good pen, pen and paper is is your friend there, and just make sure that you're designing the surveys for physical use. Uh, which is a whole separate skill because they're going to have to have enough space to write the things down on physically on paper. Um, And you store a hard copy, but then you also digitize it. And that's a lot of work, but it's, it's work that's necessary when you go back and, and look at uh, the results. Uh, Anything else on this one? No, I think I I just almost reinforce that last point is I, whenever I'm doing any of these sort of uh, data collections, and I guess it's probably because I do so much in the defense industry is you've always got to look at reversionary modes. Can't rely you know, ninety nine percent of the time, digital works for you, and that's brilliant. But it's that one time; it'll be the it'll be the the one point where you don't want it to fail, uh, and it will. Yeah. And so, yeah, back uh, backups on your backups. All right, let's get into this last one here. Uh, 
This one is, I got rejected from an interview, even though they reached out to me. This is from, from uh, Susie XO. A recruiter uh, messaged me for an opportunity at a big com- tech company. I meet all the requirements. I had an initial phone screening, and it was easy. The recruiter didn't seem to have knowledge about UX. For example, they asked me, how can, or, can you talk about an architect that you worked on? Uh, which I found very broad. So I asked, can you elaborate on what you mean? They said, this is asked by the UX lead. Architect means UX design you worked on, which I know, but I think it should be more specific. Also, they seemed really bored during the call. And I asked at the end if I'll have a chance to do UX research. They said, no, this is a design role, even though I read the job description and I know it mentioned conduct usability testing. I got a rejection email, which I'm wondering why. The role is open for all levels of experience, junior to seniors, and I meet all the requirements. Barry, what's going on here? It, I think it just reminds me of the title of a film. Um, they're just not not that into you. Um, <laughs> I hate to be a bit brutal about it, but it's, I think, part of the problem, this is part of the problem, I think, with, with going through recruiters. Um, certainly, the you know, you've, you've engaged with a recruiter and you've engaged with a um, an interview team that, isn't necessarily the team you're going to work with. Um, they've been given questions to ask. So, yeah, they don't necessarily know what you're talking about. They're taking the answers down and putting it back. But fundamentally, it is it isn't just about you meeting the skills for a job. You've got to have the right, um, um, you know, the right attitude and, and for, them, for them to have the confidence that you're going to fit into their team. So I think perhaps that maybe just the way you, either you come across or they just didn't think you were going to be a good fit, just meeting the requirements of the role itself um isn't enough in some cases particularly if you may be going um for the big tech companies where you know they they know the sort of um behavior a lot you know that 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 specific behavior model that they want to come in and uh, they've seen you know maybe they've recruited for this position quite a few times before already if um, if they're recruiting a num- number of them so they kind of know what they want um if you're looking for that sort of job where you want to be able to look at a broad range of things that's actually possibly look you need to look at a smaller company um, because they um certainly in my experience just just being able to have the right sort of cv just gets you in the door i don't once you once i'm interviewing somebody i actually don't care about the cv at that point it's all about the person it's all about the person will they fit with the people i've already got will they fit in the type of projects and will it with the type of clients i've got so it's, it's as much about um cultural behavior as it, as it is about you know the 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 courses that you've done what about you in your experience do you have you been in this sort of um had this sort of experience before Oh, geez, this is a very much read the room type of thing. Like, to me, I feel like this person thinks they're being headhunted, which (laughs) is not the case here. They're being reached out to by a recruiter. um, And, you know, recruiters look for certain criteria. They run a a search on LinkedIn that matches, you know, your criteria. And um, then they reach out to you and say, hey, we have this position available. Would you like to apply for it? It's it's an additional uh, avenue of getting people to apply to that position that they might not have had before. Um, And so just because they reached out to you doesn't mean that they wanted you specifically. That means that they were looking for people like you and they have asked probably 50 to 60 other people that match your uh, level of experience. And um, yeah, as it it sounds like, and I don't mean say, I don't mean to say this to be mean, sounds like you bombed the interview um, or they just didn't see you know, you fitting in with the company. And that's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, especially um, as it relate, you know, 
especially as it relates to these like weird positions where they say they want somebody with user experience research and but it's more of a design role. Uh, I'm glad you figured that out, but it's, it's important to ask that kind of stuff up front because, um, you know, even before you get to the interview, like that, that's something I would have asked the recruiter as they reached out to me and says, hey, you know, I, I saw that this uh, position says user experience design, but it says uh, a designer. Right. And and you ask for that clarification before you even get to the interview phase and waste everybody's time. Um, I, I think it's a tricky situation because a lot of times uh, you have HR departments that write uh, positions, especially in larger tech companies, which it sounds like this is, you have, you know, HR writing these things and it's not necessarily, um, the UX team writing the description. And so it can be confusing. Um, and I don't know, my best point of advice is to try to ask for clarification whenever possible. And it sounds like you did, maybe it was a little bit too late. Um, anyway, I, I think, uh, any other closing thoughts on that one? Yeah, just really quick. I mean, again, if it's if you really want to know what the what they truly thought of you, go back and ask them. Most recruiters are, are quite happy to give you feedback if you go back and ask them after the interview. Um, you know, you didn't choose me. What can you give me? Can you give me some feedback to improve? Um, but fundamentally, it's a bit like any sort of relationship. If I wouldn't really worry about it, if they didn't want you, then um, I wouldn't bother chasing it down because um, why would you want? Why would you want to chase up something where? Um, they, you know, one half the relationship, but what clearly wasn't going to go and work. There's going to be a job out there with your name on it. Go find it. Yeah. But what if it's the biggest tech company that you want to work for and it's like perfect and you just didn't hear well, back? I've got a, I've, I've been in that situation. I've, I've been in that situation. I was headhunted and it's the only time it's happened. It was amazing. Um, and I got, and I went for the interview. And in fact, for the first couple of interviews, they didn't even tell me who they were. It was really that sort of secretive. It was Ooh. kind of weird. Um, anyway, finally got to, um, went to their base and had their interview and it was, it felt like it was, it was, when I found out who they were, it was going to be a dream job. Absolutely amazing job. When I got there, it wasn't anything like I expected. Um, and I ended up turning it down, which was just weird. Um, in fact, I remember walking out and saying to my wife, oh, um, she's like, oh, how'd you go? How'd it go? And I was like, I turned them down. Um, I didn't want it. I didn't like it. And it, it, freaked me out for a while because uh yeah but so if it's not if it's not what you think it's going to be then you just got to crack on and move on all right well let let us move on here to get to this last <laughs> part of the show called one more thing it needs no introduction this is where we just talk about one more thing barry what's your one more thing this week so my one more thing um i was going to talk about the new new james bond movie that's came come out um and then there's been a suggestion that should be a um a female james bond what would that look like and should should it should she be 007 or actually maybe 009 but actually i just wanted to highlight the fact it's never too late to get um involved in hu in human factors my wife has i um, mean that she's we both did our degree together in command and control systems many years ago she's literally just started her human factors master's degree and completed in the past week her first assignment which apparently she tells me now was was um, held up to the rest of the students on her course um as as an exemplar of how to do it so i'd just like to say from my from myself to her she, and we'll actually find out whether she listens to this um congratulations and well done yes congratulations well done it's never too late to start um I, I love that message. And I have friends that uh, started later in life uh, down the path and uh, they're glad they did it. So if you're thinking about it on the fence, do it. Uh, my one more thing this week is um, I've never been an Apple guy, uh, but uh, my wife got the new iPhone 13, which is running iOS 15. 
Um, and I found myself watching many of these feature videos uh, on on YouTube about like what are the new stuff in iOS 15, mostly for her benefit, because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, comes out on these releases and it's important to know. And some of it can make your life really uh, much better. Um, based on some of these features. Um, but I, I have to say, I have to give it to Apple. Like, like I said, not an Apple guy, but they are killing it with some of the super cool stuff that they have going on. Um, one of the cool things that I thought was really interesting is this focus mode, which is like a do not disturb mode on crack. You can kind of, um, select pick and choose which applications or notifications you want to persist in different modes. Right. So if you're sleeping, you might say no applications, you know, wake me up. You might also say, hey, in in this situation, uh, I only want my, uh, you know, calls from my loved ones to come through because if I get a call in the middle of the night, it's probably important. Um, you know, likewise, you can say I'm, I'm studying. And so I only want my music apps to be visible. No social media, no nothing. Uh, I'm at work. I only want Slack or, or um, you know, the Microsoft suite to be available. I don't know if Microsoft's on Apple, but I'm just giving use cases. Um so and I, I always liked Android for kind of that under the hood customization uh, that you can do. And it looks like Apple's kind of catching up with that. So that's kind of cool to see, um, see them come around on some of that. All right. Well, I think that's going to be it for today, everyone. Uh, let us know what you guys think of this episode. We invite you to check out our recap of the 2021 Human Factors and Ergonomics Society International Symposium on Healthcare and Human Factors. It's got a lot of that healthcare stuff in there. Uh, feel free to comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. And for more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Slack or Discord communities. Visit our official website and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do. You can do that right now. Two, you can tell your friends about us. Uh, we always grow from word of mouth, so... Uh, consider doing that or three if you have the means available consider supporting us on patreon we always like giving back to those who give to the show uh, all that money goes right back into the show and helps us grow there's always links to all our socials on our web and uh and our website are linked in the description of this episode i want to thank mr barry kirby for being on the show today where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about what an eggplant and a peach mean you can find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram and the 1202 Human Factors podcast and your local podcast directory. Excellent. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday evening at sometime <laughs> for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors cast. Until next time. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.